welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, this episode is going to be episode number 186, and we are covering the first half, first 21 chapters of An Echo of Things to Come by James Islington. I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is Jared Livingston, our wonderful returning special guest. Feels good to be back. Yeah, yeah. And a quick reminder before we jump into the actual content, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud, where we have all kinds of fun perks and benefits. So consider supporting the show there. But for now, let's uh, let's jump into book two of the Lycanius trilogy. An echo of things to come picks up a little while after the first book, with Weir installed as the North Warden, Asa, Asha investigating the shadows, and Davian in Tall Shen with Ishel. Weir is struggling to maintain the respect of the nobility after changing the tenets, and rumors of assassination swirl around him. He has a new bodyguard, Anden, and is secretly meeting with Desia to continue their budding romance. Asha, meanwhile, is sneaking around Tall Athian, hoping to map the deep tunnels and figure out how vessels were made, and where the shadows went. Terris warns her to be careful, and she begins suffering fainting fits. Davian and Ashel are practicing their auger talents after the announcement of an auger amnesty, but the council at Tall Shen place restrictions around them and won't help figure out how to fix the boundary. Weir is forced to attend a dinner with a prospective match, Iria Tel Rath, but assassins finally strike. Andin is hit with a crossbow bolt, and Iria escapes, but before the assassins can kill Weir, they are controlled by Siner and kill each other. Siner extends an offer of peace to Weir and tells him to go to his father's estate to find information about the vessels and the creation of the tenants. Asha heads down into the sanctum once again, and while she's under her veil, witnesses a conversation between Isiliar and a Shateth named Valire. Not sure on pronunciations there. Uh, <laughs> a child Echo arrives and speaks with them before heading deeper into the catacombs. Asha follows. After narrowly avoiding detection, the child slips her tracking, and she settles in to wait in the darkness. Isiliar and Valire arrive after some time, and she follows them. Isiliar mortally wounds Valire with another enchanted sword, leaving him to die painfully. Asha kills him in an act of mercy and makes off with the sword, fleeing through the tunnels back to Tall Athian. After scaring the council in Tall Shen, Davian heads out for a day on the town. He is warned by a mysterious auger that he's being followed, though it turns out to only be one of the elders. Determined to discover who the auger is, Davian sets another trap, and ends up trapped himself, by Fessy and Aaron. Meanwhile, a new auger named Rohin accepts the amnesty in Tall Shen, and quickly becomes popular due to a talent with control. Davian is the only one who can resist it, but Rohin traps him in a con-proof cell. Davian narrowly saves his own life with Essence before Fessy and Aaron rescue him. And throughout all this, Caden is on his journey of self-discovery. His guide is killed by Nethgala, inhabiting the body of his wife, his ex-wife, El. He moves on and frees Meliar from a tributary before discovering more horrors from his past, and meets Alaris at Asiliar's tributary before heading to Ilan Ilan once again. So, a lot happened in the first half of this book. Actually, a lot did happen. But That's... At, at, at the same time, I kind of... I kind of had the same trouble I did with The Shadow Vault Was Lost, where it felt slow, even though things were happening constantly. So for me, uh, Weir and Asha, I'm like all in on that side of the story. Okay. Anytime it goes to Caden or Davian, no way. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. Like, I... I could not care any less about Weir right now. <laughs> <laughs> really? No. Yeah. His um, little, his like investigation into his father's drum, his funny bodyguard. Come on. And in, yeah. <laughs> like it, it's. <sighs> so the story with Asha, I was into, especially when she went into like the catacombs and had her little like weird chase escape thing. Like that was. I was, like, into that. I, I cruised through that. Um, so she's like, still, like, one of the more interesting characters for me. Yeah, uh, I agree. Davian, he's in the same boat as we are. Like, I just really don't care about him. Well, even when, um, like, Rohan, is that his name? Shows yeah. up and, like, takes over things. I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, 
I just I don't feel the stakes. I don't feel the urgency no. with Davian's no. story right now. Caden, I do feel the urgency and I feel the stakes. Um, but I'm I'm getting a little tired of the flashbacks. I feel like um, whenever the flashbacks come up, it's just a constant situation of not understanding fully what's going on. Mm-hmm. Who are these people? Where are we? When are we? Right. And it's just it's it's hard to get invested. <laughs> yeah. For me. So I think I think one of the things that is making this difficult on me uh, in terms of this like jarring. Uh, kind of combination of lots happening and it feeling like a slog comes down to uh, like Islington's just basic prose style and it's it's really wearing on me how much he repeats himself and how much he includes unnecessary detail like I feel like I'm I'm getting to a scene and I'm invested in what's happening, but then he just takes so long to get to the point that I get frustrated with it. Like, I, there were a few hmm. things that I've highlighted, you know, examples of these. Um, that kind of surprises like, me. <clears throat> so, like, for instance, in, in Chapter 8, uh, when Andrael shows up in Caden's uh, memory, uh, this is when they talk about the, the swords that Andrael created and... And, uh, and he, Andrael uses Kine as the, you know, nickname for him. And, and he thinks mm-hmm. about, you know, but so this, this paragraph starts with, it is good to see you, said Caden, voice thick with emotional sincerity. <laughs> like that's so that sounds overwrought, worse than, you know, yeah. like that's just, it's unwieldy, awkward, overwrought prose. You don't need mm. to say that. You could say, it's good to see you, said Caden, his voice thick. And that says the same thing with without unnecessary, obnoxiously big words. You know, and I can't say I noticed these things. Yeah, there there are so you lots mean like of them. Overly descriptive? Yeah. Like and and it's you know, there's there's another another one from chapter three. Um uh, this is when Weir is uh, meeting with the the ambassador, the Desrealite ambassador, and he's describing the Blue Hall. And like this description again, I just feel seems really awkward. And he and he's you know saying that it has the same pure white walls found everywhere else in the palace. Instead, its moniker came from the distinctive swirling design over the southern door that was made entirely of inlaid lapis lazuli. And it's like, you can find a better way to describe that. I think the the use of that was made, that to be verb in there is really awkward. Like, you could just cut that entirely over the southern door made entirely of lap, inlaid lapis lazuli. Or, you know, you could find a way to word that better. And so you get these just awkward, extensive sentences. And I find myself bogged down in those details because they don't really matter. I don't need to know this detail about the blue hall and i don't really care about this detail about the blue hall because we've never gone back to the blue hall it's there for one scene you i know? find it surprising but, coming from a will of time fan so yeah i mean th- that is that is something to keep in mind but i i also think robert jordan is more mindful about what details he included and the details end up mattering more like when he spends a lot of time describing the sigils of houses that's world building that's providing you know background for the andoran succession or something and we see those sigils repeated again and again maybe in battles later on where there are banners in in the chaos um here this is just like a random scene that he's going out of his way to awkwardly describe a door and i'm like yeah <laughs> uh so maybe it's that he doesn't do it consistently. The other, consistently. <clears throat> yeah. Like it's out and of place. And then the other thing... Right, right. And the other thing that's really bothered me... Um, actually, two more things. But one of them we've already talked about in the first book. Uh, there's a lot of overhearing conversations still. Uh, uh, I've, moved, I've moved past that. It's okay. Um, 
But it's it's his um, awkwardness in the conversations people have. There's a lot of like really weird asides where people are talking and then they just quickly talk about something else and then and then it's a, a jarring shift back to the original conversation where it's like they just jump topics and then refocus. And he uses that word refocused a lot where where they're like it, it's it almost feels like he was in the middle of writing a scene and then realized, oh, wait a second, I need to include this other information for context. So I'm going to write that. And then, all right, now we're going to go back to the other thing. And instead of naturally developing, you know, the context for the story and then naturally developing the flow of the conversation, we just like jump around in really weird ways. Um, and, and I say naturally here in a specific context. Real life human conversations do often jump around like that. But in text, in storytelling, that comes across as jumbled and unorganized. And, and it's one of those things where if you really break down good dialogue in books and, and good dialogue in movies, it often doesn't reflect what real human conversation is like. Hmm. Yeah. I thought about that. Yeah. I don't... Like, you know, there's... Uh, so, like, this is another one that, that I was, uh, it, it just, it just felt weird. So, it, it's very early on, um, I think this, this is maybe, like, chapter two or three, Asar and Caden are talking, and, and Caden has his, just, like, outburst, um, he's, where he's just frustrated about not understanding things. And it says, Asar stayed silent throughout the minor outburst, just watching. Once he was satisfied that Caden had finished... He hesitated. <laughs> like what? <laughs> How do you notice? And then it things? just goes directly into dialogue. So it's like he doesn't hesitate, and you don't need to say that he hesitated. You just say he waited for him to get through the outburst, and then he talks. You don't need to say he hesitated. And by putting that detail in there, it's just like it feels weird to me as a reader where I'm picturing two characters just sitting there like staring at each other for <laughs> Maybe another minute awkward. or two after one after one character had a whole but but it's like it doesn't make sense that he hesitates there because he has the whole outburst that he's sitting through silently to think about what he's going to respond with and then he hesitates like why say that like that just takes up space on the page and it doesn't add anything to his character it doesn't add anything to the scene you know it's like they're these are the kind of things that are just unnecessary space fillers that make these books, these very thick books, feel unnecessarily long. I think your writing experience is making this harder for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I, I've i been aware of. I mean, I, I think I told this story on the podcast to, to Rob at one point where uh, I had a professor in college who... Uh, it was for a science fiction fantasy literature course, and, and it was all about, like, we had different units where we'd watch a movie and read a book that dealt with similar themes. Um, like, the first unit, we watched District 9, and we read Dawn by Octavia Butler, and both of them deal with topics of, like, racism and xenophobia with, like, aliens as metaphors for different races on Earth. Um, but he started that class off by saying, like, you're all in here because you love science fiction and fantasy. I'm going to ruin reading and watching science fiction and fantasy for you <laughs> because you're not like, and, and I'm not going to say he did actually ruin it, but I think about it in different ways because of that class, because of my, you know, education in writing and my experience in writing stories where I, I'm, I spend a lot of time looking at the, the pieces that go into making the story whole and cohesive rather than just, reading the story <laughs> for me it's not the style holding me back it's plot not moving forward in certain areas where i want it to that's holding me back mm -hmm. like all these little stylistic things besides the one right. besides overhearing things all the time trope i haven't noticed any of these other ones that you've mentioned yeah yeah so this actually just a quick aside here um i assume the answer is no but I'm curious. I know once upon a time you did dabble in writing. 
Is that something you've touched at all in in recent years? Not since college. I mean, like, obviously outside of professional things. Right. Yeah. Yeah, creative writing-wise. Because I remember Creative writing, not since college. Yeah. I remember reading early chapters of a fantasy book that you were working on. Man. Uh, I don't even know. They might be on an old hard drive somewhere. Yeah, I I wonder if I still have them on, on like one of my old laptops. Like I think some of these things, <laughs> you know, it's just when you're writing every week, you notice these kind of things. Yeah, it, and dialogue in particular is something that I'm very aware of. Uh, I have always felt like dialogue is the strongest aspect of my writing. Uh, I my writing style is heavily dialogue driven i don't write the robert jordan-esque george martin-esque you know flowery detailed descriptions of everything in the room that's why i'm surprised uh, these things yeah. are jumping out to well you. so and and that's that's also part of it is like he doesn't describe everything in the room he just chooses like one or two random things and it feels purposeless Mm-hmm. You know, where whereas in in the Wheel of Time, you may have a scene where Elaine walks into the throne room of Andor, and he's going to describe the throne. He's going to describe the pillars. He's going to describe the stained glass windows. He's going to describe what the servants are wearing. He's going to describe what the visiting nobles are wearing. Like so, he paints the whole scene for you. Islington paints like two aspects of the scene, so you're you're sitting here in a black and white room with a blue door over there, and you're like, why is the door blue? Do you feel like he almost like throws them in after the fact, going back and editing, realizing, oh, I need to add some detail? Ooh, or you know, I hadn't think considered that, but like that would part make of his, some sense. Yeah, like maybe it's more of an editing thing than an original workflow. I'm not sure. It could be either one. Like I could see that being a a thing that's like top of his mind in drafting, where he's like. Put touchstones in every scene. Make sure you describe at least one thing in every scene to give the reader something to ground on it. But like, mm-hmm. but for me, that feels pointless because that's not the focus of the scene. What I ground myself in the scene is the characters interacting, and and I don't need a random door to be blue to feel like I'm in the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe some other readers do. I you know, but that's. That's not my experience. That's certainly not how I write. Um, you know, like I, I write a lot more like Glenn Cook, <laughs> where if I'm going to describe something, it's because there's a purpose to it. <laughs> oh, so you mean you switch scenes like from one sentence to the next sentence in the same paragraph? Mm, no, not <laughs> not in terms of like jumping around in in timeline like that. Uh, although there are a couple of those in the current uh, novel that I'm working on, where there's a. Um, I'll start a chapter with just like a brief like catch you up on what's going on and then and then zoom in on a scene like two weeks later or something like that. But oh, but one, uh, like, it's just one really a, random annoying thing that you made me think of with that is that <laughs> uh, at least with the ebooks, um, so like the flashback scenes, they're all in italic. Yep, and it's really hard to read on an ebook when it's the entire page is italic like am i crazy (laughs) uh i don't have that problem um there were a couple of points where i was annoyed by the the use of non-italics in like for emphasis so when you're writing in Mm -hmm. all italics and you want to emphasize a word you you unitalicize it you know, so it stands out the way an italicized word for emphasis stands out in normal text. Um, I think it was the flashback where he's uh, he runs into L, quote unquote L, in the forest, and it tells him about Nethgala. There were a lot of uh, emphasized words, and so just like it, it just looked weird on the page how there would be random chunks of uh, non-italicized mm. words in the middle of. And it would like it would be like every other word was emphasized. So it'd be like non-italics, italics, non-italics, italics, non-italics. Like <laughs> it's such a nitpicky thing, but I'm like, I know it's I know it's a memory. You can just non-italicize everything. 
Yeah. Like, typically speaking, uh, I know authors like to do this. This is, for instance, this is something Robert Jordan does. If you think back to certain yes. uh, memories that, uh, like, there's there's one that immediately jumps to mind with a certain uh, Forsaken character in A Crown of Swords. And mm-hmm. there's, like, mm-hmm. the whole first half of a chapter is italicized memory of her meeting a very uh, uh, imposing person. I love that you're saving the one person, like, who's <laughs> hasn't read Wheel of Time yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, like, it, it's, it's definitely a staple of the genre, so I'm not going to get on Islington's case about it. Uh, yeah. But I do yeah. understand how some people could be, like, put off by well i think it's like it was pages upon pages of italics it would bother me less i think if i was reading an actual hard copy i don't know Hmm. yeah i so i i have the second and third books on ebook uh i only had the first one in hard copy because we you know got those free copies at jordan con yeah uh you know cheaper and these are clearly not going to be favorites for me so i don't really need to make shelf space for them <laughs> yeah i mean i haven't i haven't had many problems with the style in general like i don't, I don't think dialogue is felt awkward for me like it has for you okay i haven't really well, noticed good. the descriptions <laughs> then again i do have like a habit of kind of glossing over descriptions when i'm reading fast oh so maybe sure that's part yeah. of it yeah when you when you get cruising it all kind of blurs together a bit. Um, and, and that is one thing I will say for this. When I can get in a groove with this, it is easily readable. Like, I'm sure for most people, when they sit down and, and pick up this book, they're they're flying through the pages. Like, this is yeah, an easy Yeah, I was going to say, reader. like, you know, texting you a couple times, you're, like, kind of slogging through it. And I think <laughs> on, like, each of the three sections so far... I've probably done each of them in like two chunks, like two sittings. Wow. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I'm definitely not struggling to get through it. <clears throat> yeah. I, I find myself, it's this like, uh, almost like yo-yo sensation where I'll, uh, you know, I'll be in the scene with Asha in the tunnels in the catacombs and I am just like devouring it, you know? And then I finish that chapter and I get to a Davian chapter and I'm just like, Ugh. Oh yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> and, about... it, and it takes me forty-five minutes to read fifteen pages because I just like I find myself stopping and and analyzing the text more because I don't care as much about what's going on on the page and and I find myself putting the book down and and going and doing something else because I am not gripped by the story anymore and you know yeah I think like book one I was like. Probably um, this, this had a similar level of interest in all the storylines, whereas this one, it's like I'm super interested in Asha and Weir, and then like <laughs> not so much Davian, with the, like uh, Davian the for sure. Folks. I just like nothing's happening with him. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, and we're halfway through the book. When I was talking about it in, oh wait, no, never mind. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna. I, I'm in my own head right now. So, like, there's a, there's a setup at the beginning of this book with um, a clear kind of uh, storyline established for each of the characters, right? Like, Asha has her thing trying to figure out what's going on with the Shadrehan and the Shadows and the Vessels. Uh, and Weir has his thing where he's got a romance subplot line with Desia and he has a main plot line, like, establishing himself as the North Warden and... And, you know, doing that. And then Davian's plotline is learning about his auger powers and fixing the boundary. You, 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 and we, we're halfway through the book, and it feels like he's made no progress on that. Yeah. Um, and I think I also probably had some false expectations for what he would be doing in this book. Like, I thought there would be a lot of time travel shenanigans with him. Yeah, and was really looking forward. And that's to that. much more Caden. <laughs> and now it's like, nope, he's just doing training. Except there's no progress in that training, really. Right. 
He's not like yeah, we, we just hear like how Ishel's better than him at certain things and he's better at others, but we don't see any progress for either of them. He's not like, like progressing. He's, his relationships aren't really changing at all. Like no, I, I mean I guess he kind of like shoots down a shell. I don't know, <clears throat> but but that's like we already knew that was happening. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It feels a little bit like Well of Ascension, uh, where there's a lot of treading water going on through the first half of the book. Where, like, Mm. sort of the same conflict beats are hit over and over, and they don't resolve them. It just cycles back. And it's like, okay, the mystery's still ongoing. If it has a Sanderson avalanche at the end, then I'm okay, but... Yeah, if it has an ending as good as The Well of Ascension, that will go a long way toward redeeming this book. But so far, I'll say, I I think this book is weaker in the first half than The Shadow of What Was Lost. I agree. Um, I still think there's a lot of potential, though. And, like, Caden... Like, it's... They seem all, all these... It all seems necessary with him. It's just so hard to keep track of who these people are. Like, yeah yeah like there's a lot of a lot of just random jargon thrown around where you're like i don't know like me like i I think i recognize a few of those words yeah and and i'm like i need to go back and reread some scenes in the first book because i think those names were mentioned there and i i want to get that context and then i keep reading i'm like "Ah, i don't care enough (laughs) it's like (laughs) i'll figure it out when when everything comes together and i know all these swords floating around uh, yeah, that that was an interesting bit of world building, and I do kind of like that. That like Lycanius isn't just one special sword; that there's like a bunch of others, and some of them like are like maybe flawed. Yeah, uh, but yeah, there's one other thing, you know, maybe a style thing that ties into this. Uh, like an example that popped out at me was when he's talking with uh, Andrael. I think it was in that flashback. There's a there's a, a paragraph where he starts naming all the other venerate. And where they are, where they all are, and what they're doing, and you're just like, I don't know what any of these places are, or what any of these actions they're doing mean. And then the next paragraph, he describes one of them. He's like, he knew now that what the iron sails were. They were these Dorishan, you know, mechanized ships. I'm like, okay, why did you choose that one thing to describe and not describe anything else from that whole paragraph of gibberish? Mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm. You know, and and on top of that, it's the one word that like people could probably figure out most easily because it's not a made up word. It's you know, iron sails. You you get that image in your head of like, okay, they're metal ships, like, it, it, like. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he does some of that too, where he um, will throw out these in world terms that you don't have any idea what they mean, and then maybe explain one of them either like a chapter later or like a few chapters later. Like the um, yeah, uh, what was that th- the thing called that Asiliar was trapped in um, the tributary? Tributary, like that's one example I can think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like he finds Meliar in one first, and then mm-hmm. we don't really know what it is for like three more chapters. Right. Um, so it just doesn't like just it, yeah. Eh. So the one thing I'll say is all this stuff with Caden and with the Venerates and Talcomar's background, like, I'm interested in the, like, the dynamics among all the Venerate. Um, like, it, there's clearly rich history he has planned there, and I like seeing them all kind of, they're, they're these larger-than-life mythical figures. Um and that's the sort of stuff that I, I tend to like in epic fantasy. You know, you want those larger-than-life characters. You you want people that are going to pop off the page and be is there a way for heroes him, or villains. And, is there a way for him to just give a little more context, though, with some <laughs> right. of those flashbacks? But, but he's so bent on making everything in this story a mystery. Right. I feel like the last half of the last book is just going to be, like, explaining everything, finally. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you think about, it, to make a comparison here, maybe the Venerate are, are like the Forsaken in the Wheel of Time. You understand the Forsaken and a lot of the dynamics of the Forsaken as they get introduced across the series. And then what they're currently doing 
That's the mystery. That's what pulls you along. Here, mm-hmm. he's making everything a mystery. You don't know yeah. who they are or what their motivations are or, you know, what their history is like or how they've interacted with each other in the past. All you know is what they're doing right now and what they're talking about, and you don't understand half of what they're talking about. <laughs> and like you were saying on the last one, I don't believe anybody that anything that anyone is saying about sides that you should be on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm on it's side. Like, I'm on side Asha. That's the side that I'm on. Yeah, yeah. Like we we get we get the whole thing of like, all right. So Talcumar was our kind Devade, and he's trying to fix his his backstory. And clearly, he did horrible things in the past. But Asar is telling him what he's supposed to be doing now. And I'm I even though Asar is dead, I don't know if I trust what he's saying. No, like no, if, if people are hiding like. Shamaloth and 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 L and and it's like each time he runs into another of the venerate, there's like, all right, who believes what about this? And <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm like stepping into a family dinner and everyone's fighting. I'm just there for dinner. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, okay, actually, I'll I'll say one thing to jump over to Weir. Um, Brashada's back. That's good. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah. I was... I don't know how I feel about her being gifted. Yeah. But, but uh, I, 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 I'm I glad she's we can, back. I don't think we can judge, really, until we find out what's going on with her, really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was excited when she appeared on the page. That, like, that's something that has the potential to get me back into caring about Weir's plotline. Yeah, I'm surprised you don't like his. I found it very enjoyable. It just, like, again, I don't feel like there were stakes there, the at least of the same level as the other plot lines, where, where with Davian I'm frustrated because there are clear stakes with the boundary and there's just no progress being made. With Weir, it's like there's progress being made, but I, I don't feel like the things are as important as what's going on in other characters' stories. Maybe... Do you feel some of the stakes are manufactured, like with the the assassination attempt? A little bit, a little bit. Um, I... So this is one thing that it has been very present in my mind since reading the Dresden Files is how authors will strategically insert action scenes when they feel the pace of the story is flagging, and. And I felt like that assassination scene was one of those where it's like, all right, nothing's happening in Weir's storyline. Like, all he's doing is going around and talking to people and not making any progress with any of it. So I need to throw in a fight scene to spruce it up. Um, and I now I will admit he uses it for more than just that. And, and that's why it didn't, like, outright annoy me. Like, for instance, there's a, a fight scene in... Uh, Peace Talks, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was Peace Talks in the Dresden Files, where it was like, in the standard structure of a Dresden book, there's going to be a fight scene at like the 10 or 15% mark. That's just how he structures his books. And and that like, you know, helps the reader like keep the pace going, keep the blood flowing, you know, keep pulling you along through the story. But with Peace Talks, that book is so much filler that this, this fight scene to keep the pace up ends up being like, 15% 15% of the book and it's a fight scene with no stakes and like very little importance to the plot. And so it's like, wow, that did not need to be that long here. I didn't feel like that. I, f- I felt like he found a purpose for it beyond just keeping, keeping things moving because he had signer show up and, yeah, and control the guys. Say, and so the like fight scene th- happened and it progressed the plot. I feel like the stakes will be revealed more, <laughs> but maybe you find that more mm-hmm. annoying. Well, I think part of it is that I th- the the real stakes in Weir's storyline, I feel like, are really just Asha's storyline encroaching on Weir's. <laughs> That's a good point, because, I mean, his whole, his whole thing right now is investigative, which yeah. she's already doing anyways. Right, like, he's, he's looking into this stuff kind of for her, so... I, th- yeah. I kind of, like... Um, Asha's just the best character. 
Some of my predictions were just wrong. Like I thought there would be a lot of fallout because he made some small mistake in the tenants or something. But yeah, yeah, really I remember happened. you saying that. Yeah, I still think it's a possibility. Um, like I, I was surprised when the assassins showed up. I thought we were going to see him taking advantage of the new tenants to throw some essence around in defense of his life. You know, uh, where where that wouldn't have been possible. Like he he. But well, then Signer showed up, and can't he do it like in defense of Andara? Uh, yeah. So the tenant that he made, the new tenant, was like, you can use it in defense of your life or in defense of Andara. And it previously used to be that you just can't use it against another human being who isn't a gifted. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, Signer enjoyed... showed up. Was like, okay, this is this is different. I've enjoyed his scenes. I've enjoyed his little banter with his bodyguard. Yeah, I like Andon. Andon's... His family... He's my kind of sense of humor. He's got that dry, just, mm-hmm. like, sarcastic, you know. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, he's dealing with a crappy family, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, like... Which... His <laughs> mom sucks. Yeah, like, what? Okay. Like, I, I thought at first that it was going to be a thing where he has a he has to figure out like bridging the gap between his mother and sister and himself. But then you get through this, it's like his sister is also getting screwed over here, and like his mom's just awful. Well, honestly, I forgot like, he had a sister until he was at <laughs> his house. So <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I, I'm I'm still interested in his storyline, even if it's overlapping with Asha's. <clears throat> Which I think is the most gripping so far in the first half. Easily. Easily. Like, yeah. Asha is far and away the best character. Give me an entire book of her, and I'm going to have very few problems. Like... <laughs> yes. Yes. I know I know there are, you know, those memes that you see going around where it's like... You, you finish a chapter about a character you like, and you get to a chapter about a character you don't like, and you're just like... Mm. You know, <laughs> and I, that's, that's kind of how I yep. feel about a few of the characters in this right now. Um, but I question some I of know, her decision it, making. Like, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, the, come the, up the, with, like going into the like, catacombs was like, that could have gone so much worse so easily. <laughs> yeah, like, okay. So lucky. Yeah. It was, it was a good thing that that random room you got led into had a, a clear water pool and waterfall in it for you to refill your canteen. <laughs> <laughs> she found a health pack. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Like It's almost uh, gone to the point, like, I enjoy her storylines enough where I'm almost just amused now and hoping for it that she comes up to a scene where she's overhearing something. Every time. Every, <laughs> every freaking time. So now That's... it's like this thing that I just maniacally enjoy now <laughs> when when james islington came up with the idea of a veil that asha could use he was just like yes <laughs> perfect <laughs> oh man it's uh, yeah like i am starting to get to the point where it's becoming funny rather than annoying but it is something i'm hyper aware of with her plot line that like anytime there's movement it's because she is overhearing a conversation yeah, like, whatever. It's okay. She is she is a remarkably passive character for how much she gets done. Because she just, like, locks into things. Locks into information. I mean, she has these little uh, vessel weapons that she's used a couple times. Mm-hmm. And she gave, yeah, she <clears throat> gave the ring to Passive. <clears throat> but that's that's what it is. It's like, she she goes off to do something... Doesn't end up doing it, but stumbles into important information. <laughs> or she's That's aimless true. and doesn't know what to do, so she just wanders around. And she's like, well, I'm going to go back downstairs to, you know, the to the community, and I don't know what I'm looking for. Or, like, I'm just going to go try to check out the map. And, oh, what do you know? I ran into two of the most important <laughs> people in the world. <laughs> shocking. Shocking. <laughs> true... Truly incredible turn of events. Uh, it's okay but, though. It but yeah, works. at the same time, it it's it does. Like I am the most invested in her plotline. It's the most exciting. There's yeah. 
the most interesting things are happening. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Maybe that's just the, the lesson I need to learn from my own writing is like, if you come up with like a literary conceit for one character, lean into it. <laughs> just, just go for it. <laughs> Hey, maybe he got feedback after the first one and was like, all right, I'm just, I'm going with it. Yeah, people are like, wow, the scenes that I was really into were when Asha was overhearing Terrace and, and Layman talking, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's because we're yeah. finally getting info in scenes with her when the rest of the books, he's withholding info. Yes, that is true. That is true. That's, and, and like, and with Caden... I think the reason Caden is frustrating is because we're getting info, but it doesn't mean anything yet. Yeah. Like, there's kind very of worry, little like, that you can use. I worry that he's going to rely on, like, info dumps as a climax. Like, I hope it doesn't come to that. I, yeah, I could see that happening. Uh, so, okay, here's here's a question for you with Caden. Do you think he and Davian are going to end up squaring off against each other? <sighs> I do. I, f- I really feel like those plot lines, that's where they're going. It has to be, With right? the revelation that they have to, like, kill all the Venerate and Augurs to close the portal, to close the rift, to, like, save the world. It's like, well, obviously Davian's whole thing is getting the Augurs back. Yeah. So, it, they, I, yeah. I mean, it kind of feels like, I don't, I don't really under, it feels like they're moving towards a climax at the boundary at the end of this book, but I'm not really like, (laughs) not really sure what's going to happen there. Yeah. Yeah. Like Caden's storyline in the middle of this book here, where we start getting an understanding of how the boundary works with like the tributaries and, and like, that's why it's weakening is that the venerate are like being released from their little torture coffins. (laughs) Uh, But, but yeah, like I wanted more progress with Davian's plotline leading toward the boundary, and I feel like all that's coming on Caden's side of things, and Davian's just treading water with Augur stuff. Like, is um, is, is any of the stuff that's happened with Davian so far even going to be relevant at the end of the book? I feel like Rohan is, because uh, like Siner Siner's got to show up again. Um, also, Siner's totally one of the Venerate, right? Like, he's not just an Augur. He's got to be uh, one of the maybe? better. Quite, yeah, like, that's... as in, this has been confirmed, or you're asking me if I think that? And, and, yeah, I'm asking if you think the same as I do. Uh, <laughs> it would not surprise me, sure. He's way too he's way too competent. The only people we've seen who are, like, that dangerous are the Venerate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it um, wouldn't surprise me. I can't say that I thought about yeah, that I f- until now, but... I feel like Siner's going to show up at the end of the book and Caden's going to be there and there's going to be some moment of recognition. He's going to be like, ah, oh, you're this venerate, you know. I don't I don't want an info dump as long as it's not that. <laughs> yeah. Unless it's uh, Asha, then it's fine. Unless she's, unless Asha is overhearing the conversation <laughs> between Caden and Siner while they have their big showdown. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Asha's just like ducking her head under a veil in the middle of a battlefield listening to people talking. <laughs> Look, I mean, uh, whatever she's got to do. Yeah, got to do what she's got to do. I haven't uh, lost faith in the Davian storyline, but I'm treading water with it. I'll say that. Mm hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, are there any other characters you want to talk about? Um. No? Question mark? Yeah, so... Kind of covered Kaden. My last kind of character point just ties into that sort of prediction I have about Caden and and, uh, Davian butting heads. Is, you know, so we have this established plot point now that in order to close the rift, you gotta kill all the augurs in the venerate. And I think he's setting us up to soften that blow when it happens... By having most of the augurs be either outright unlikable or, like, mm, people of questionable morals. Because, like, even Fessy and Aaron, I feel like, are pretty underhanded. Like, we were set up with Aaron, how he was controlling uh, Elosian 
the North Warden uh-huh. for years. Like that that's pretty messed up. This it's like, of, that's one of those under, ends justify the means thing. It's kind of swept under yeah. the rug too. Yeah, and and we get we get a lot of discussion in this about ends justifying the means. You know, where where there's the whole conversation about like soldiers in war and how war is the ultimate version of the ends justifying the means. And like good soldiers will do what they need to do to protect themselves and their and their comrades and their interests and it, I mean, no matter have, how awful those things are. You have and Arkine so, like eternally torturing people in order to keep a boundary, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that's gonna be it's gonna end up being a a core theme when we start dealing with what to do about the augurs and the venerate and ultimately i hope he doesn't come to the conclusion that the ends justify the means uh but it's going to be complicated because either way you're gonna you're gonna have you're gonna have to side with people who view the world this way or you're gonna have to kill those people to fix the world and either way you're dealing with some sketchy morality you know yeah, I don't think we've had another auger that like isn't sketchy. Yeah, like think. it's it's uh, it, by making s- all the augers other than Davy and sketchy. I think he's setting himself up to hopefully avoid that moral conundrum where like it's more okay to kill all the augers to fix the I world mean, because they're all like kind of crappy people. Some of the venerate. I might consider likable. Like, who was the guy? Um, I'm blanking. The first one that he removed from the tributary. Meliar? Meliar. Like, I don't... Yeah. He didn't, like, jump out at me as being a horrible person. Right. He's the one who, like... Uh, it was in that flashback that he shows him about, like, the destruction of the Duretians. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have that conversation about the ends justifying the means. Yeah. And it's Tal Kamar who's, like, saying the ends justify the means, if I remember correctly. So. I don't know. Yeah, he, he could... He, yeah. I mean, Asar, I guess, seemed like he was a decent dude. But he, he did. But even then, like, as you were reading him, were you really sure? Like... Right. You, you're not. Yeah. Um. Okay. Actually, I just remembered something, and I... I don't know how I, I didn't have this down in my notes... So, am I crazy, or did we get the revelation that Caden, that Talcomar, is Malshash? Oh, yeah, that that was my understanding, anyways. Because, like, the whole wedding thing where, with the murder and then the, like, yes. death magic, that was him. Like, how do you Ali- feel about that? Olivia, or Olivia, being his wife? Yeah, yes. El- El- Eliavia, yeah. <laughs> um... How do you uh, feel about Malshash being Caden, being Talcomar? Eh. I'm okay with it. I kind of like, don't like it. Eh. Like, I'm tired of every important person all being the same dude. <laughs> <laughs> Look, when you're I mean, traveling around in time, this is going to happen. Yeah, it, well, and that's part of it. Is I As we get in further, I'm like, I'm less certain I'm going to like how the time travel is used. I was okay with it in uh, in the first book. It's not Daylinus. like Malshash knows about future Caden, you know? No, but I was really hoping Malshash would show up again. You know, because mm. he's going to show up again. We, we know that. Yeah, but you knew he was going to be he's... somebody. Like... Like, I'm okay with it. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. I, I'm reserving judgment on this one. I don't think it came across <laughs> to me as much of a shock as he might have intended it to be. Yeah, I was more just confused at first where I was like, wait, no way. He like, there's just no like way this is what, what I think there. it is. Uh-huh. Um, and I I'm, I guess I'm like, I want to know what the deal is with Nethgala, like... Also, I, I don't know where that's going. Can Caden shapeshift? Right. Like, obviously, like, he's got the whole inhabiting new bodies thing. Right. <clears throat> but when does he get the, when does he steal the shapeshifting power that he has to use? I feel like you're going to be, okay, I have a prediction. 
that you're going to be okay. very disappointed in something because oh boy um like he's gonna like it, there's gonna be a revelation that he's been like shape shifting shape shifting as someone that you've known and it's not actually them uh, oh, I would, I would not be happy with that. <laughs> I'm calling it. I'm calling it. I would not be happy with that. Oh boy. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, do you have any other notes to go over? I do not. Okay. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion for this half of the book. But of course, we have the final draft. What are you drinking over there? Uh, not to be boring, but same thing as last time. It's that good. Uh, <laughs> white right. chocolate air from uh, Sonoran Brewing Company. Yeah, man, I, I'm I'm definitely gonna have that on my list of things to check out when I it's so eventually weird. return gotta, to drinking. You've gotta try it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I am just drinking some water. I kind of wore my voice out yesterday. I was doing a lot of reading out loud and woke up this morning with a bit of a sore throat just from overuse and i don't have a sore throat anymore but i've been very careful with my voice today uh so just water but as always i have a beer to talk about and this is another beer from arizona uh oh this is a west coast ipa uh from fate brewing company in scottsdale fate is good uh i have had this beer before uh i remember it being a pretty run-of-the-mill west coast ipa like it was it was a decent beer. It was nothing special, but it was by no means bad. It was. It definitely had that uh, um, that kind of West Coast uh, hop profile that you would expect. I remember it being pretty pretty piney, a little juniper berry y. Um, it would yeah. help if I were into IPAs, but Fate uh, in general has some really good stuff for sure. Yeah, and this beer is called Fateful. So. Yeah, I guess they were bound to show up for this trilogy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's all about fate right now. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, this has been episode 100, what did I say, 186? Oh, Lord. Yeah, 186 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, as always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon or on Coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash inkingoutloud for a one-time donation. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, the excellent Jared Livingston. Yo. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. See you guys. See you guys.